Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. David? Yes? Can we start today's show with the NBA today? Uh, Sure, let's do it. Now, if people don't know, this is not the NBA today with the standard spelling. This is the NBA number two day. This is our IP. I heard a Sirius XM segment over the weekend, and they were talking about the NBA today. I said, oop, do I need to send a cease and desist letter? <laughs> do we need to get the law firm no. of Brett Gunner to send something out? No, no. This is our IP. The big NBA media story last week, David, this will shock you, was a Stephen A. Smith news cycle. Oh, no. What was it? What happened? The Lakers' Anthony Davis got poked in the eye in yeah. game five of their series against the Warriors. There was a report during the game that he was taken off to the locker room in a wheelchair. <laughs> don't you know, Stephen A. had a take on that. Because, damn it, I'll be damned if I were laughing. The, the, the th- I'm like, concussion? Concussion? I, I thought the NFL season was over. You know now, I understand that concussions can happen in other sports, boxing, UFC. And I mean, if the collision is fierce enough, I guess it could happen in basketball, too. But damn, we, I ain't seen nothing yesterday that made me say concussion. I, concussion. So we really need to create a special Emmy category for Brian Windhorst, <laughs> who during this segment was in the middle box between Stephen A. and Jay Williams. Mm-hmm. And just was as expressionless as any sports pundit could possibly be. <laughs> His mouth looked like the Easter Island Moai. I mean, just nothing. Stephen A. <laughs> laughing at this idea. Brian Winhorn just staring straight ahead, baby. Not get not getting myself involved in this. Now, obviously, Stephen A. is wrong about concussions or brain injuries in basketball. Mm-hmm. We all saw Draymond Green hit his head on the floor in game four of that series. Mm-hmm. And there is a certain, would you say, 90s sports columnist vibe there about, you're really hurt? Yeah. What are you, too weak to come out and play basketball? Well, I mean, it's, it feels like sort of the end result of someone being, about it being impressed upon someone that concussions are a significant issue but not actually requiring them to do the work to understand it. Yes. Yes. Or even really totally embrace the idea. Yeah. I mean, I it's basically just like, listen, I know the concussions are a serious issue, but I didn't see any cartoon coily marks coming out of his head or stars circling around. So how could I possibly believe mm. that this is a concussion? So Stephen A. Smith is obviously in the wrong here. I will just add one caveat without quite doing a Stephen A. trademark, but here. Mm-hmm. Put Anthony Davis aside for a second. Okay. Put the, uh, the idea of serious brain injuries aside for just one second. Mm-hmm. What have we seen over and over again during these playoffs? 
we have seen players not flop to get a foul called, but lie on the floor after a collision, Mm -hmm. after a foul. Yeah. Like they are never going to play basketball again. Yeah. And then hop up as soon as the refs go over to the video monitor to see if it's a flagrant one. Mm -hmm. That has been happening over and over again. Again, I want to completely separate these two issues here, but that has been happening over and over again in these playoffs. Oh, yeah. That is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It is ridiculous. So, again, I do not endorse laughing at somebody with a possible brain injury. I don't endorse laughing at this. I know Shaq and Barkley were in on this, too. But can we at least look at the practice of I am trying to sell that I am hurt as I have never been hurt and I'm not really hurt Mm -hmm. and have a little merry fun with that very small piece of what's happening in the playoffs? Yeah, I think so. I think that's fair. I mean, it's that we've definitely entered a new level of, you know, soccer style flopping sort of if you end up on your back best best use i mean the best way to turn it around at that point is just to get a little get take some deep breaths get a little r and r let your teammates do the same um but yeah this is a very this is a it's it makes it difficult to referee i'm sure but it also makes it really difficult to call the game because the tone i mean halftime shows one thing you can be a little bit measured you know you can have you have some time to to hone the take at that point. But in real time, like how do you really modulate between a flop and a real injury, especially when you don't really know the difference? Totally. You're like, this is either the biggest story in sports. (laughs) I'm going to lead sports center tonight or in five seconds, I'm never going to mention it again. Yeah. And you can see announcers sort of, and if you get it wrong in either direction, you could become, you could become the story. You could become part of the story. Exactly. Go back to that Anthony Davis injury for a second, because last week on the pod, I had John Ireland, Lakers Mm -hmm. radio play-by-play man on, Mm -hmm. and I asked him, what do you do as an announcer when you're looking at a player and trying to figure out if he really is suffering from a serious injury? I was texting the Laker PR guy, any update on AD, and he, he sent back to me in real time, no, nothing yet. And exactly when he did that, Chris Haynes came on TV and said, Anthony Davis is out for the rest of this game and he's being wheeled in a wheelchair for further observation. I used to get that stuff from the team. Now you'll get it from Clutch. You'll get it from his agent. You'll get it from reporters like David Veneman and, and Chris Haynes who are dialed in. So it's a whole new world trying to figure out what's real and what's spin. I thought that was so interesting. Not just the off-season transaction notes. Not just those are coming from agents and agencies, mm-hmm. but the actual in-game injury update, mm-hmm. the Lakers official play-by-play announcer is having to turn to an insider who has that connection rather than the Lakers. Yeah. And listening to John do that game on the radio, he's just like, I'm reading a tweet from Chris Haynes right now. Like I have mm-hmm. no more information than this. And I don't even know. And Chris Haynes is pretty rock solid right so you feel pretty good about that but i cannot give you like the lakers confirm this i can just read your tweet play by play guys they're just like us right (laughs) (laughs) something else for you david before we start the show proper here the denver nuggets are going to play the lakers in the western conference finals Mm -hmm. starting on tuesday night this is one of my favorite things because this is the rare 
pro sports franchise playing in a huge game or series in this case that has almost no national media footprint. Mm -hmm. Very few associations, even with people who are big fans of the sport. Oh, yeah. It really reminds me of when the Bengals made the Super Bowl. Uh-huh. And remember, people didn't know how to pronounce the team's mascot. They were saying <laughs> Bengals. Yeah, this, this really happened two years ago. People did not understand how to pronounce the name of the Cincinnati Bengals. Yeah, I feel we're now back there with the Nuggets. They never oh, for won sure. An, never won an NBA title. They've never won a conference title. Mm-hmm. Can you guess who the Nuggets celebrity fans are? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I assume it's like, you know, some writer for like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia or something. Is it, I mean, how's, how, how high on the celebrity chart could this possibly go? That was really good because the answer is, according to a Grantland piece by our friend Shea Serrano, Matt Parker and Trey Stone. Oh, there we go. Which is not bad. Mm-hmm. But you and I didn't know that. <laughs> we had no idea. No. And I was even looking up on Amazon and eBay to try to find out how many proper books have ever been written about the Denver Nuggets. (laughs) Yeah. There are, you know, stories from the Nuggets. Uh, There was a Denver Nuggets joke book, which I'd really like to get in my possession just to see how many jokes deep you could go on the Nuggets franchise. (laughs) But I found one called Hardwood Gold. Oh, really? And then a couple of player bios. And that's it. So again, no offense to anybody here, but we're just talking about a franchise that has a very, very, very tiny media imprint. Dang, the Nuggets gift shop must be pretty, pretty, pretty depleted in the book section there. (laughs) You think the uh, Denver Barnes and Noble, you think they just (laughs) do pro basketball? They don't even have like a half a shelf (laughs) for Nuggets books. God, that's pretty crazy. One book. One book, I think. If anybody has any more, let us know. Coming up on today's podcast, David, what went haywire with CNN's Trump Town Hall? Is Ron DeSantis writing a media underestimation news cycle? RIP MTV News and former Barack Obama spokesman Eric Schultz joins us to talk about how he helped succession create a terrifyingly realistic presidential election. All that and much more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, producer Erica Cervantes here with you. So that Trump CNN town hall, mm-hmm. that went pretty well, huh? <laughs> a lot of great reviews. Yeah, no comment. <laughs> here is a typical exchange between Trump and CNN's Caitlin Collins talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. If I'm president, I will have that war settled in one day, 24 hours. I'll meet with Putin, I'll meet with Zelensky. They both have weaknesses and they both have strengths. And within 24 hours, that war will be settled. It'll be over. It'll be absolutely over. Do you want Ukraine to win this war? Uh, I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I think in terms of getting it settled so we stop killing all these people and breaking down this this country. Far be it from Trump to ever think in terms of winning and losing. (laughs) 
in that clip, you could hear exactly what hijacked this interview, which was the crowd cheering Mm -hmm. Donald Trump. Yeah. They were cheering him all night. They were cheering when he talked about the writer, E. Jean Carroll, who just won a civil verdict against him for sexual abuse. And it changed the whole nature of the interview because instead of Caitlin Collins asking questions of Donald Trump, it was like Caitlin Collins standing on a stage during a Trump rally. And dude, there were issues I have with the interview, but I am not sure how any commentator succeeds in that kind of environment. Well, I think a lot of people are justifiably putting those things, tying those things together, right? I mean, CNN agreed to the terms of the debate, which included who was in the audience. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a totally, it's a totally different situation. Dice debate town hall. I mean, it's a totally different situation than anything comparable because you're not in pursuit of truth. Or even if, you, if you're in pursuit of truth, it doesn't really matter because you're, you know, staring down somebody who's in pursuit of popping the crowd, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you can ask whatever you want. If Trump can just stand up and be just like, like, you know, uh, you know, does the Hulk Hogan on hand wave hand, cupped hand to the ear and the crowd goes nuts. It doesn't really, you know, no response is really necessary. <laughs> and you could be interviewing you know, just the person with the lowest approval rating on planet earth. And if after they say everything, the crowd cheers. Mm -hmm. And when you say something, the crowd is dead silent. I think you're going to create an impression on television that they are holding their own. Oh, for sure. Or perhaps even carrying the day. Mm -hmm. It's just so strange. And, you know, I wondered Like, why would CNN put Caitlin Collins in that position, given that she's about to become the 9 p.m. anchor on their network? Mm -hmm. There's high visibility, but there's also setting somebody up not to succeed. Yeah, it's almost as if there's no amount of planning that can really prepare you for that situation, right? It's like the harder you work, the more inevitable it is that you will be, that you will you know, be outwitted because someone is doing just something totally different, right? It's not a conventional town hall. It's not a conventional interview by any stretch of the imagination. No. Uh, And it is very strange. Um, I'm sure the calculus, though, was that, I mean, I'm sure part of the calculus was that she wanted to do it and CNN wanted to put her in that position, you know? I mean, we're in a no press is bad press world, right? So why not? Well, that's definitely CNN's idea about this whole thing. But just struck me, it's like we're having this huge conversation about platforming Donald Trump. There's probably also a very important conversation to have about the nature of the platform. Oh, for sure. Is a one-on-one interview in a studio without an applause track? Mm-hmm. Or is this going to be something where everybody's like, yeah, yeah, great answer. You didn't, <laughs> you, I'm going to settle the Ukraine dispute in one day. Yeah, yeah, he'll do that. It's like, no, that's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. Yeah. But everybody cheers. It comes along. Yeah, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you another thing about the CNN town hall that really blew my mind. They give Trump 70 minutes and then they go to the panels. And one of the panels was hosted by Anderson Cooper out of New York. And it's a bunch of familiar 
CNN analysts that you and I have watched over the years. And part of the panel was Byron Donalds, who is this Republican representative from Florida who has endorsed Trump. (laughs) So we've given Trump 70 minutes. Trump's told a bunch of lies. Then you go to your panel who you would think is like, these are the people who are going to adjudicate things. (laughs) If we've, if we've made a mistake, at least here are trusted CNN people who can tell you what's right from wrong. Give you a sense of what happened this evening. Yeah. No, no, no. We've got a Trump surrogate on the panel. Yeah. Who is making that process next to impossible. I mean, when I saw that, I was like, Oh, that's the Chris licked vision here. The Trump thing. It's probably a one-off. He may never do it again. They may not want him to do it again. Mm-hmm. But this idea that we can't even have CNN analysts analyzing the debate by themselves. We have to bring in a surrogate. Are we going to do this one when, when Biden has a state of the union? Did they did Biden's first state of the union? Do we have Jen Psaki sitting there on the panel? Well, here's what Biden was trying to say. No, he just gave a speech. We, we, yeah. get, we get to dissect. Now it's time for the journalist to take over, the analyst to take over. I thought that yeah. was crazy. I totally agree. I mean, it's this weird, this weird sort of corner that Trump has backed everybody into, which is that if you don't, even if if you're nominally conservative pundits, don't claim to be Trump fans, which numbers just about everybody in like polite society at this point, then now you have to find a voice. If you stick by your, you don't have to. If you if you go by these old tired hidebound rules or whatever about how to how to balance the scales you have to go find somebody who is you know going to even things out and in Trump's case it's only the zombies there's the only they're the only, they're the only options cuz that's all there is it just feels like we're going back to Jeffrey Lord CNN of 2016 2015 and whatever you want to say about CNN during the Trump era and you and I have talked many times about how that has been retconned into something that it absolutely was not. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Lord's CNN era CNN was terrible. That that was a flop. That stunk. Everybody hated that. Mm-hmm. This idea of like we're having that now. We're, it's almost like we've upped the ante. It's not even just like, well, this is a commentator who happens to be pro-Trump. This is an elected official who endorsed him. <laughs> He's getting to do the analysis rather than being interviewed. I just thought that was so wild. They popped a 3 million or a rating of 3 million viewers on Wednesday night. And guess what happened the next night? Well, Donald Trump wasn't on TV anymore. So it went down to half a million viewers. <laughs> that was funny. Created a lot of internal strife at CNN. There's been a lot of reporting over that on that over the last couple of days. Here was Anderson Cooper trying to put a brave face on the town hall. Maybe you haven't been paying attention to him since he left office. Maybe you've been enjoying not hearing from him, thinking it can't happen again. Some investigation is going to stop him. Well, it hasn't so far. So if last night showed anything, it showed it can happen again. It is happening again. He hasn't changed, and he is running hard. You have every right to be outraged today and angry and never watch this network again. But do you think staying in your silo and only listening to people you agree with is going to make that person go away? So the case he's making, and you can tell he's not completely convinced, but the case he's making is that this was a scared straight moment for America. Yeah. We've heard that that a lot. That guy should, could still be president. Mm -hmm. And we're showing you a vision of the guy who could still be president. 
One more time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's the way that people have been dealing with Trump since he first started running. What do you expect us to do? Not put him on TV? He, he defies convention. He defies all of the rules of, 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 like I said, polite society when it comes to broadcasting news. And, um, you know, how many years in are we now? And nobody's actually just figured out what they want to do about it. I mean, here's the thing. CNN might have been prepared for backlash, but they probably weren't prepared for the amount that they got because no one's figured it out yet. No one's no one's cracked the code yet. And um, I don't think that ignoring him is the right solution. Um but I, I, but it might be the best solution right now. It might be the most practical solution. Did Savannah Guthrie and Jonathan Swan kind of crack the code, or at least offer an idea of how you could interview Trump and not create an advertisement for Donald Trump? Sure. I mean, if you get him out from in front of an audience and you and you, you know, just let the cameras roll. I mean, like I said, everything is at odds with the convention, right? I mean, the the I think probably the greatest value you would get out of a, a, a Trump interview, a lengthy Trump interview, would be the stuff that would normally hit the hunt, hit the cutting room floor, right? The the pauses, the 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 non answers, the just the, and you know he wants to ramble, he wants to just keep going, but at some point that sort of tells on itself. So, I, I mean, who knows? But it but it does seem like there's there's a path forward. It's just if you have to. If you have to draw up a whole, if you have to change the whole defense to account for his offense, then is is it worth even cracking the code? Right? Is it is this a conversation that we're all willing to have? Totally valid point. Uh, CNN has a media newsletter that I and a bunch of other people rely on. It's written by Oliver Darcy. It came out right after the town hall and said it's hard to see how America was served by the spectacle of lies that aired on CNN Wednesday evening. Mm-hmm. According to reporting first in Puck and then in Semaphore, that earned Oliver Darcy a meeting with Chris Licht. Uh, interesting time to be at CNN. Mm-hmm. By the way, the whole broadcast began with Wolf Blitzer, who always has amazing announcer speak, saying this. This is an important night in the United States. We're watching it very closely. <laughs> and then cutting to the town hall. What AI-generated intro was that? In other political news, David, Ron DeSantis went to Iowa this weekend. Mm-hmm. He saw. is still running for president. Oh, yeah. You may have heard him count it out. I'm exaggerating somewhat, but he also rolled out some endorsements. Wait, is he, has he actually announced his candidacy? He has not. So he's not actually technically running for president. Sorry, he is probably about to run for president. Would be if you haven't announced your candidacy... What is the argument? What kind of dereliction of duty is it to, your, to, the, to the people who <laughs> voted for you or the, the citizens of Florida that you're just like chilling in Iowa? Well, you know, making going, it, like, to... going to barbecue cookouts and, and <laughs> wearing had, aprons all over the place. He has had this amazing rhetorical tick win in Iowa or anywhere where he praises the state mm-hmm. by invoking this phrase. This is from the website Florida Politics. Ron DeSantis says Florida is, quote, the Iowa of the Southeast. (laughs) So down here in Florida, we're just trying to replicate the Iowa model. 
But he says that everywhere he goes or just in Iowa? Yeah, it would be funny on its own, but there's another headline here. Ron DeSantis says Florida is the Utah of the Southeast. (laughs) (laughs) How far can we push this? Alaska of the Southeast just doesn't really make any sense. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no way that you up there with your weather being radically different than I just don't think that metaphor quite tracks all the way. Yeah. Do you think he can get away with the South Dakota of the Southeast? Sure. I mean, it's Florida. You can say whatever you want. There's some hamlet somewhere that is vaguely reminiscent. No, but you can lie whenever you want, I guess is the point. You can't say the California of the Southeast. Every time I go back to Texas, those politicians are like, we don't want to turn this place into California. True. That That's terrible out there. Terrible, I tell you, mm-hmm. out in California. DeSantis rolled out some endorsements, Trump style, 37 state legislators, uh, representing over a third of the combined number of Republican lawmakers in the state's House and Senate, according to National Review. I do wonder if DeSantis is now going to enjoy a low expectations news cycle. What do you mean? Well, there were a lot of reporting, all of it true, on him getting clobbered by Trump in the polls, him getting outfoxed by Trump in terms of endorsements, him not being so great at talking to other human beings on the stump. Yeah, sure. So now he comes in and if he is just generic politician, replacement level politician, in Iowa and other places, everybody's like, oh, were we overlooking Ron DeSantis? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems really simplistic, but this far out, that's kind of how it works. Yeah. I mean, but it's pretty, uh, you know what? It'll probably work. I was going to say that's that's a pretty fast, like ham-fisted, force-fed, force-fed news cycle if that's the case. But mm-hmm. you know what? It probably would work. Our political media? Again, mm-hmm. will somebody exactly write that piece? No. But will that be a guiding influence as reporters who are looking at their watches and going, I have 18 months left to go. Mm -hmm. Am I going to write Trump is inevitable for the next until January, February when the primaries start? Are we going to try to, (laughs) is this going to be interesting? Well, he's going to entertain the idea that DeSantis has something here. I don't know. I think that's in people's minds. I think so, too. I mean, I also think it's important at this point just not to give the polls too much credence. You know, Trump just takes up a lot of oxygen, but he also just has such name recognition and such a sort of movement behind him that I, I'm not sure that DeSantis or anybody else is really, you know, I don't, I don't know that, that that their polling is really an ac- accurate reflection of what it might look like when the primary actually gets going. Um so, but and then for that reason, I'm not sure it's even worth doing the whole. I mean, even considering the whole comeback kid cycle, because he he is where he is. It's not like he, you know, if you thought that he was going to come out of the gate with, you know, thirty percent, forty percent, you were probably wrong to begin with, right? You're starting from a from a, a wrong place. So, uh, who knows? No, every way the media covers Trump is a reaction to the way the media once covered Trump. Mm-hmm. Remember 2015 when Trump was ahead in all those national polls? It was like, oh, it's just a celebrity. It's just name recognition. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these national polls don't matter. It's who wins Iowa, New Hampshire, et cetera, et cetera. And then Trump stormed to the nomination. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's like the, all this shell shock, right? Oh, well, I once said that those polls didn't matter for Trump. Well, 
Am I going to say that again and be wrong twice? Again, mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing that's in reporters' minds. For sure. And they don't have to overcorrect the other way and say Trump is inevitable. The polls this far out of right, but nobody likes to be wrong the same way twice. Of course not. But you but you don't overcorrect and get and be wrong the other way. Right? I mean, that's not really a functional solution. I mean, it's a functional solution. It's not a very good solution. Do we want to say a word or two for MTV News? Oh, yeah. Which left your cable bundle last week. You have a favorite MTV News moment. Are you on the Kurt Cobain death announcement or Bill Clinton being asked boxers or briefs? (laughs) Certainly more of a Cobain death announcement guy. Um, Although the boxers or briefs thing was a big deal. At the time, um, not sure that's aged particularly well. But yeah, I mean, listen, MTV News was a huge part of my childhood. All the people that are rightly being uh, touted um, are incredibly significant. It is weird when a eulogy like this happens, and we're and we're we immediately go to eulogizing some the a piece of it from a long, long time ago. The Kurt right? Loader, Tab of the Soren era. Yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense, right? I mean, if like, whatever, uh, I'm not even going to name a name because I feel like I'll be jinxing it. But if like a 70 or 80 year old former NBA player dies, then a lot of his bio <laughs> is going to be about his <laughs> his championship rings. Because please don't wonder aloud about anyone's possible um, death. Yeah, I can't deal with any more jinxes these days. But uh, but yeah, so yeah, it's it's a it's it's but it is it has been interesting in that like. You know, MTV News was a going concern up until, well, I guess up until now. I don't really know what it's been like of late, but, you know, it obviously rebooted several years ago under our old boss, Dan Fearman, and and we know a lot of the people that work there. But MTV News has been sort of a floating, uh, a hazy target, except for, you know, between that, you know, between, between that point and, and, the, and the part that we're eulogizing before. But yeah, I mean, the on TV, TV news aspect of it, the sort of Ur Vice News, you know, news for the rest of us sort of vibe for the, that, that it put off was was incredibly significant. And I think probably really formative for a lot of the people that do this sort of thing for a living. We don't wear suits here. No. Kurt Loder might wear a leather jacket. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of ESPN2 in it, or probably vice versa. ESPN2 sought to have a lot of MTV news. Sure. When in it, when it was created, there's also, as you say, news for you. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you the music news, pop culture news that you want right now. And then we're going to stick a foot into the adult world, yeah. which you might have thought was either too arcane or too important to worry about. Then we're going to go interview those presidential candidates. Mm-hmm. We're going to get time there. Make sure we have a big foot in the election. Well, and also part of that's just the realization that you have power. I mean, that, 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 you know, demographics bring, bring with it a certain power. Um, candidates, whoever else can talk to the youth of America by going on MTV news. Doesn't not really access journalism or whatever, but, um, we certainly see a lot more of that now than we did at the time. Coming up in 30 seconds. And speaking of cable, how did succession make a frighteningly realistic election episode last night eric schultz a consultant explains but first let's do the overworked twitter joke of the week david where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media twitter made it at exactly the same time send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received 
Today's winner comes to us from Ronnie Ronerson. A lot of news about the writer's strike out here in Hollywood, actually on mm-hmm. both coasts. And lots of those social media posts you've been seeing show celebrities turning out to show their support for the mm-hmm. writers. Well, the band Imagine Dragons turned up. Oh, no. And played some music for the writers down the street from our old Ringer headquarters in Hollywood. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, Imagine Dragons is going to break the strike by performing. (laughs) Yeah. Pause for laughter. If you've heard that joke concept a million times, but it makes you smile because it's Imagine Dragons. Mm -hmm. Congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right. In the notebook dump. If you don't want succession spoilers, skip right ahead to the pun headline. But if you were terrified by last night's election episode, America decides we've got the guy who deserves some of the credit or much of the blame. Eric Schultz is a senior advisor to former President Barack Obama. Now he's helped succession create an episode with a tortured decision desk guy on a conservative news network. Eric, welcome to the press box. Brian, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I think <laughs> let's start here. How did you become part of Team Succession? Sure, I have um, been in touch over the years with Frank Rich, the executive producer, and Jesse Armstrong, the creator of the show, about a few sort of political storylines that that sort of creep in very, very occasionally over the years, and they would just call to sort of gut check some questions. Uh, it then early last year when it became apparent that they were going to have a presidential election sort of as, as one of the storylines for this season, uh, asked if, if I would come on and be a consultant for the season. And it w- was not, didn't take a lot of arm twisting for me to say yes. <laughs> the best drama on TV. Yeah, I can uh, be available for that. Right. I was like, okay, what time should I show up? <laughs> like I'm getting on a plane right now. Now, did they want to pick your brain in a big session as they were thinking of storylines? Did you come in at different parts of the writing process? When were you present? You bet. So I think they asked me to, they invited me into the writer's room pretty early on as they were crafting the arc of the season, just to discuss you know, what the political storyline would look like. Uh, and so we discussed a, a whole bunch of scenarios. And obviously that was always going to culminate on election night, which was last night's episode. Uh, but even for the episodes where the politics is in the background for, for other for, for uh, other episodes this season, you know, we, we would be consulting um, because obviously the writers of the show are brilliant, they are creative, they're hilarious, uh, and they are obsessive with their attention to detail. And so making sure that even though a lot of the storylines are outrageous and dramatic, uh, um, they they wanted to make sure that it felt real and that these scenarios were were were, were plausible. You've been in a lot of high leverage meetings in your career. What did you make at the Succession Writers Room? Oh goodness! I mean, I I don't have that much experience working uh, in, in film and television yet, but I will say that I just found everyone to be incredibly kind and gracious and welcoming. I, I did find a lot of parallels in terms of working in politics. Fortunately, in my real life, I've never met anyone like the Roy family. But I will say that um, the sort of collaborative nature of working together 
the sort of team energy, the rolling deadlines, it felt very much like analogous to working in politics. And obviously the sort of centrality of storytelling and in, in in, in how that is sort of the anchor of, of all of the other work, you know, was something that hit home for me. What kind of election scenario did they tell you they were interested in creating? Uh, I think they wanted something disruptive and something murky so that, you know, there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, intrigue and confusion around what was what was happening. So obviously, with how it ended up playing out last night, right, we have analogs to a bunch of presidential campaigns. You've got 2000, where it sort of all comes down to one state, and yet a bunch of ballots, it's, it's a little unclear how they were cast. You've got 2016 with a candidate who most people didn't think was going to win uh, and sort of shocked the nation by doing so. Right Last night, you've got that scene with the, Jared Mankin, the candidate, and Roman, who both acknowledge that he's unlikely to win. And I think <laughs> most Republicans in 2016 would have said the same thing going into election night. And then obviously 2020, when Fox News now famously called Arizona for Joe Biden, uh, they were the only network to do so. Uh, and you could imagine a scenario where they didn't, right? You could imagine, you could sort of play out in your hot head how squishy things would feel if they weren't willing to do that. At the same time, that boxes them in for the uh, moving forward, right? Because they, they can't call the other states or else they'd be the first network to call Joe Biden the president of the United States. And so I think the writers definitely sort of turn that on its head uh, for this for this episode. Yeah. So instead of boxing themselves in to declare Joe Biden the president or basically declare him the president, which we know now from reading all these emails, made Trump incredibly angry and caused some people inside Fox to ask, hmm, is this is this, is this a permanent decision? Can we can we waver on this at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. It, it, you've, you've even got um right, the show is pretty good about showing the interplay between the campaigns and the networks, right? Because a political people like me who are on these campaigns are constantly lobbying to get sort of both favorable coverage, but also sort of optimistic, um, you know, sort of optimistic prognosis from their from their pundits and their on-air talent. I think what's different about the show than in real life is, um, uh, you know, in real life, there's a firewall between uh, the editorial side and the sort of decision desk in, in this in this show, it's called Decision Desk. He's called Decision Desk Darwin. Uh, but there's a pretty clear firewall between those of us on uh, between the news side and the reporters who are engaging us and um, the sort of data crunchers who who make these decisions. Obviously, the uh, the professional who who was in charge of that decision for Fox and uh, 2020 no longer works at the network, uh, was, was fired. And so I think the writers in this instance wanted to sort of poke that a little bit. Give me a sense of what those election night calls are like in real life. You were talking to a producer, you're talking to on-air talent in that case. I'm talking to anyone who will take my calls. I worked for, uh, the Al Franken for Senate campaign in 2008. And that really was, um, a recount situation that went many, many months after election night. And our opponent at the time, uh, Norm Coleman, had declared victory that night. And again, we burned up every phone line we could find to say, guys, this isn't over, that that I would not prematurely call this race. 
And even though Coleman decided to declare victory, we we worked very hard to make sure the journalists and the sort of mainstream news outlets knew that this was far from over. And I think that dynamic is also its display in this show when I think it is right, Kendall and Shiv talking about if they can deliver the platform, uh, men can declare victory. It's sort of a one-two punch, right? They announce the projection and then men can go ahead and declare victory. And I think that that sequencing was definitely sort of the most terrifying part of last night's show. Absolutely. Back to real life for a second. Your sell to the media and the networks in the case of Frank and Coleman is you don't want to look dumb tonight by saying one guy won. And then a few months from now, when we go through all the machinations and the recounts, the other guy will have won. Yes. I think Florida in 2000 is a legendary example of this, that networks had had called it for gore and they called, you know, they they sort of like flip flop back and forth and it just looked pretty terrible. And I think for that reason, networks, and news outlets that called races became a lot more conservative in how they do so to just make sure they not only triple checked it, they quadruple checked it. There was no scenario uh, where it could be reversed. And so our job is to sort of exploit that insecurity, right? Like if, if we want, we, if we, the last thing news networks want to do is be wrong. Uh, some things you just have are factual and you have to be, you have to get right. And yes, our, our job is to make sure that they know that, um, that this was, um, likely to go into overtime and that we had sufficient votes to, to make up the gap. Part of the episode last night is that there was a big fire at a vote counting center in Milwaukee. So what would happen if a bunch of votes went up in flames on election night before they were counted? Yeah, I, I mentioned what I found most terrifying about the episode. Maybe I <laughs> maybe want to amend my answer. <laughs> but look, we, we picked Wisconsin not by accident. Uh, there, there was a lot of research by my, by our, the team that that worked on this, including a, a, a young, talented writer named Justin Geldeser and Ben Ginsburg, a Republican super lawyer who helped do a lot of the research to make sure that this episode felt realistic. Um, and we looked at various scenarios around the country. We wanted to find a state that was later into the evening, so it was sort of sequenced correctly for the sort of arc of the episode. We wanted to find a state that was a swing state, and we wanted to find a place that could house enough votes in order to be determinative. And so we we were shooting from the hip when we when we picked that venue. We did a lot of research to figure out in, in these contingency scenarios what would happen. And the truth is, it gets murky <laughs> that, it, that it has not really been spelled out for sort of these different various emergency scenarios. And so um, as Shiv said, well, I guess it was Roman in the show that that a re- revote, and I think Darwin also says that a revote is entirely uh, rare. Uh, that is true. And so I think finding precedent for these things proved to be illustrative. Uh, and, and I think the, the writers found that, um, found the lack of a playbook to be really rich material. Mm-hmm. So obviously there'd be lots and lots of court cases, but then it would come down to a decision of do the people who voted and whose votes weren't counted because of <laughs> an act of God or saboteurs or whatever it was, do they get to vote again? That's the essential question. Exactly. And, and I think you're right that they preview that there's going to be months of litigation to come. And it, I think, you know, we, we basically say this is going to come down to the House of to, um to Congress meeting in January when the Electoral College 
you know, he makes it official, right? There, there's going to be a lot of disputes until then. And so we weren't, uh, we weren't trying to skim over how messy this is, that both because this had never happened before uh, and because of the stakes that it was, that it was fraught. But again, that underscores the power that a network like ATN has in the moment to say, hey, based on our analysis, our experts believe that Mencken won the race and, and how that sort of changes the conversation in, in the minds of, of the audience and also the country, right? Like if, if the election does not feel legitimate or not does not feel credible, it, it's almost everything else is at risk. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> I would experience that as a country lately. You mentioned the uh, succession team being really obsessed with realism and small touches of realism. What were some of the parts of the show that you waited on personally and said, I can help you with that? Yeah, I think um, a couple of things. One is the way election night progresses, right? The the, the way the states are, are reported in and their electoral votes, that was all very intentional. Um, and very realistic because again, some of the plot lines are are flights of fancy, but we wanted, but the writers wanted to make sure that it took place against a backdrop that felt real and credible. Uh, and so that's why I think the show pops is because everything feels more plausible um, when it's taking place in a realistic uh, environment. One example from an earlier episode, uh, there was a a moment where. Uh, the presidential candidate wants to stop by and make a make a personal visit to the to the Roy's family that that's that's grieving the loss of their father. And uh, the writers and production team would ask, well, what kind of security footprint would that look like? And for me, in my world, that's called an off-the-record stop, an OTR, where it's pre- it's not announced in advance. And so there's a very specific protocol for for Secret Service. And I walked them through what that footprint would be, both in the room, outside the room, in the building, outside the building. And then they said, okay, great. What kind of vests do the Secret Service dogs wear? And I was like, not prepared for that level of detail, that that question. And so I had to go back and do some research. Uh, but we got them their answer. And the answer was? Uh, well, you'll have to watch, I think it's episode four. <laughs> I just don't remember the dog vest. You know, uh, well, go- <laughs> you know, we, we, we should give him or her some more attention. That's, that's, that's pretty inside even for a ringer uh, succession recap episode. But... Uh- We'll go back and look. Um, in terms of what was pure fiction last night, uh, what stood out to you as being something we have on TV drama, but we don't have in real life? Yeah, I think, again, um, and unfortunately, art is imitating, or that life is imitating art, Brian. I think that, um, again, incredible news outlets, there's there's a firewall between, I talked about the the sort of decision desk and the news side. But there's absolutely a firewall between the news side and the business side. And obviously, that has been trampled over at ATN, but arguably um, at at Fox News. And so I think that um, an incredible, legitimate news outlet, that would not be breached. I also don't think a credible news outlet would would call uh, Wisconsin for for a candidate with, with everything sort of under suspicion. Uh, I think they would they would they would want to play that out. But again, Fox News in today's environment, I think maybe ten years ago they they'd be more conservative. But now that they're sort of a more nakedly political right wing outlet, that 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 symbiotic relationship with um, 
uh, with the Republican Party, is, is they, they probably have left qualms about that. What struck you about being on the set for the filming of this episode? No, it was the coolest thing I've ever done. Again, everyone was kind and gracious. And, um, you know, if they, if there was something that didn't sort of sound right to me, and I would sort of tip off a writer and said that that felt a little off, they would fix it for the next take. And so they really were uh, fanatical about making sure that they got the small stuff right. At one point, we had, t- we had a conversation about the Silver State, Nevada. Uh, because I think some people pronounce it Nevada. But if you work in politics or you've been to that state, you know that it's Nevada. And so making sure that our our um, our characters got that right, you know, s- small stuff like that was a uh, was part of why I was there. If you work in politics or follow John Ralston on Twitter, you will never <laughs> mispronounce yes. the name of the exactly. silver state. Yes, yes. Some of us have learned it the hard way, Brian. <laughs> Are political people like journalists in that they all really want to have their own HBO dramas by the end of their career? Um, look, I, I think that there's there's certainly a, a immense overlap between the entertainment industry and the political and, and politics. If you um, look at rituals like the White House Correspondents Dinner Weekend, you know we sort of celebrate the, the White House Press Corps and the First Amendment in Washington, but we're also sort of a bunch of, of Hollywood executives and talent and writers, producers come to DC uh, to join us. We're sort of all smitten with each other because uh, they get to see how we work a little bit and we, we get access to them. And so I think there's a mutual fascination between our two industries. Uh, and I, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. I heard from a very, very confidential source whose name is definitely not Claire McNear that you were spotted at the correspondence dinner this year with one or more of the property brothers. Is that correct? Can you confirm right yeah, here on the confirm, press box? I can confirm that I do have the, uh, the pleasure of working with Drew and Jonathan Scott of HGTV's property brothers. Uh, they're very, uh, they do a lot in this sort of renewable energy space and obviously working to make sure that yeah, that, that's a, obviously a sort of a, a very right public policy area in, in Washington, but making sure that that translates to people at home and what you can do to greenify your home. There, it's hard to find two better messages for that. So th- that's an example of of celebrities using their platforms uh, in, in real smart, helpful ways. So wait, you work with them, you work with Succession and Designated Survivor now? This is your Hollywood portfolio? Yeah, can you believe it? Don't ask me to rank them. <laughs> you're not doing a power ranking of my hollywood clients <laughs> yes uh designated survivor was was also a blast uh i worked on the uh third season uh when netflix did the reboot of it and, and it was largely you know uh, a similar experience of the writers just wanting to know what it's like to work in the white house and, and what are the sort of the scenarios that come up and if we have this sort of storyline how would you deal with it what's a what's a plausible way to sort of address it um who would be in this meeting would you be eating lunch in that meeting you know uh, all of the where would this sort of rally type thing event happen and so um you know it's it it's it's cool because it's um uh, a different way to use to, to use my experience all right before we go here's a safe power ranking you can do favorite television shows or movies that have depicted life inside the white house or politics 
I would have to say one of the reasons I got into politics was the West was watching the West Wing. And so that was just like a very cool window into watching, you know, mostly young people, um, but people in it for the right reasons, energized, working around the clock, trying to solve complex issues, taking the work seriously, but not themselves too seriously. All of that sort of wet my appetite to come to Washington. Um, and of course, Veep. I mean, the, the show is hilarious, but it's also so damn realistic. Uh, and um, obviously, they had they had brilliant consultants on that show too. I did not work on that show, but um, but obviously, their depiction of, of how Washington works is is dead on. You can follow Eric Schultz at Eric Schultz on Twitter, where he will be putting even Ringer Succession recappers to shame. Eric, thanks for coming on the press box. Great to join you. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker Guesses, the strained pun headline. Yeah. Last Monday's pun about the rise of the pocket calculator was Empire of the Sum. Today's headline comes from Chris. It's from The Verge. We've been talking a lot about AI, David. Well, this piece in The Verge argues that Google's AI chatbot, chatbot, excuse me, which is called Bard, is not very good. And the last thing Google should be spending a fortune on is this not very good thing. I think that's enough. What was The Verge's strain pun headline? Wait, one more time? Is this an <laughs> Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day pun? What am I? Very, am very I... barred day. This is, uh, uh, this is the barred chatbot. No good. Do not spend money on this thing that is not good. Why don't... Don't, don't waste money on this thing that's not good. Uh, room and bard, uh, bard of a. Um, if something is bar, no good, the last thing you want to do is dump death. a bunch of money on it. Oh, uh, waste away. Uh, um, An expression. Uh, throwing good after mm -hmm. good money after bard. There we go. Google All needs right. to stop throwing good money after bard. All right. Chris, who sent this in, said this may be too strained for you guys. I was like, apparently you don't know us all that well, Chris. <laughs> but thanks for the headline. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. I mentioned the Denver Nuggets, David, uh -huh. earlier in the show. So I was thinking, like, that is one of those beats in sports writing that I just, I didn't have, I couldn't give you a lot from. Yeah. You get, tell me Chicago Bulls, New York Knicks, anything. I could give you something. I mm -hmm. couldn't really give you much from the Denver Nuggets beat. So I'm sitting there going, who can explain to me what the Denver Nuggets beat was like? And in fact, give me some fantastic war stories from the Denver Nuggets beat. And I was like, I know who it is. It's Mark J. Spears from mm -hmm. ESPN and Anscape, who covered that team for the Denver Post from 1999 to 2007. I try not to overhype podcasts. You know, I see some people that every podcast, this was a phenomenal interview. Fantastic, phenomenal. I try not to do that. This was so much fun. Listening to Mark tell war stories from Mello's arrival, Allen Iverson's arrival, the time the team boycotted a practice. Oh, no. Didn't know that story. The time he was pulled off the beat to cover a space shuttle explosion in Texas. Absolutely. Just yanked right off? Yanked right off. Got something else to do. Your gamer can wait. Anyway, love talking to Mark. 
Shoemaker and I back Monday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.